when you make a report, you're just at step one of a suspicion. That you're not saying it's abuse. You're saying, I suspected it, but a lot more information needs to be gathered. This is my part of the information. Now, CPS and maybe even other specialists are going to contribute information so that the best decisions can be made, not just in terms of whether it's abuse or not, but what's needed to keep the child safe. I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today, we're talking about sexual abuse. Joining me here in the podcast studio is Dr. Nancy Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg is the Division Chief for Child Abuse Pediatrics at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and she also works at the Center for Miracles. Dr. Kellogg, you completed medical school and pediatric residency at the University of Texas Health Science Center, and you evaluate children and adolescents for suspected abuse or neglect at the Center for Miracles. You're a professor of pediatrics and You've served as a medical director of the Forensic Nurse Examiner Program at Children's Hospital of San Antonio for 16 years and program director, establishing one of the first child abuse pediatric fellowships following accreditation of a new specialty. You were appointed for six years to the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Child Abuse since 2006, and you've served as the medical editor for the American Board of Pediatric Child Abuse Pediatric Subboard for 17 years. You've been helping children who suffer from abuse since 1988. Yeah. What a difference you're making, and it must be such a hard job. I'm so honored to have you here in, in the podcast studio. Oh, thank you. When we're talking about physical abuse, I would say to the biggest focus, the biggest concern would be in very young infants. So we have a term called sentinel injuries. And so sentinel injuries are unexplained injuries, bruises that are visible on a pre-mobile infant. And so with sentinel injuries, if we have a child that has an unexplained bruise on the chest or an unexplained subconjunctival hemorrhage or has a lacerated frenulum, which is the tissue inside the mouth, and we don't know why, we don't have a good explanation for it, those are things that need to be reported. Our infants are at greatest risk for the severe, life-threatening type of abuse. And so mm. those are the things that we need to report. We also need to do the complete medical workup. So there's a lot involved with that. It'll be blood work. We're looking for bleeding disorders. But we're also looking for what we call more subtle or occult injuries, like small fractures that might be in that baby. So we would be doing x-rays and we're doing CT scan. Those are the ones that are the, have the highest concern. <laughs> As they get older, it really changes because the children get mobile. They're going to fall. They're going to get bruises. And we have to begin to look at where the bruises are. Is there a pattern to it that suggests an object was being used? What does the child say about the injury? So it I cannot overstate the importance of the child's history. When you have a child who's verbal and who can tell you how they got that bruise or how they got that injury, I think it needs to be taken seriously. The same, especially the sexual abuse. 
to ask a child, you know, what happened or if they're beginning to, to disclose sexual abuse, to listen carefully. It's very hard for kids to talk about their abuse. And when you're attentive and you're receptive and you acknowledge your fear and you acknowledge their anxiety in telling you, it goes a long way in trying to help that child speak up and to for the next steps to happen to make sure that child's safe. Um, I always thank children that talk to me I, every single time. <laughs> I think we have to remember, especially when we talk about sexual abuse, it takes about two years for a kid to tell about sexual abuse, for a child to tell someone about sexual abuse. Mm. And over those two years, a lot of things are happening. They are constantly debating whether to tell. And if they're school age, they're old enough to understand that if I tell, it might break up my family, somebody might go to jail, my mom is going to be unhappy, all of these things. My little brother will lose his parent. So all of these things are going through this child's head, and they're constantly thinking about, should I tell, should I not tell? I need to keep it secret. So when a child first tells, it's very important that they know that the person that they're talking to believes them. You don't have to take off your friend or your parent hat when somebody is telling you about abuse. You need to be listening to what they're saying, and you need to accept it. And you need to convey that you believe them. Because right at that point, that's critical. When kids first tell, they have these super sensitive antennas out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they know they're reading your nonverbal. They're reading your verbal. They're, they're trying to see, does this person believe me? And so if you like, well, are you sure that happened? Or maybe it was just a dream. Kids were going to, they're going to take back what they said at that when they hear that, if there's any doubt, they would take it back. And so I would say that if you're one of the first people, if you're the first person that a child is telling, it's very important that you listen, you have empathic listening, and that you say, I believe you, I want to help you. This is what we need to do next. Dr. Kelly, what do you recommend we do next? When you have a child that has made a clear statement, and, it, you know, I think you just have to verify that. Because if you say, so-and-so hurt me, that can mean a lot of things. That could be sibling play. <laughs> that could be anything. And so just knowing if you get to the point where you have a child who's verbal, who understands speech, who's normal development for their age, can understand your questions, and can respond appropriately to questions, and they indicate that they were sexually abused, this person touched them in a place they should not have been touched, then I think the response is first, thank you for telling me. I really appreciate that you trusted me with this. We need to do some things to keep you safe right here and now. This is what I'm going to do. And so you always want to be transparent. With kids, you don't want to make promises you can't keep. You can't say, this will never happen to you again. You don't know that. you know. But you can say, I'm going to tell you everything I'm going to do, and I will explain it to you. So, of course, what happens next depends a little bit on the situation. So if a child is telling you and you're not in the family, if you're a professional, 
is say, first thing we need to do is to talk to your mom about this. And we're going to need to talk to some other people that can come and help figure out everything that's going on. And they can also make a plan to be sure that you're safe. You know, so, and, and again, that may be too strong a promise, <laughs> but to say they're going to come and look at ways to keep you safe, I think would be an appropriate thing to do. You have to be so careful about what you say to kids. You don't, again, want to make them promise. Your heart jumps out to them. You, you want to tell them it's not going to happen. You want to make it better. But all you really can do is to be honest and transparent with the child and respectful and grateful that they told you. So say if we're in the exam room setting for the pediatrician, you thank the child, then you can discreetly call CPS. The parent doesn't need to know you're doing that because what if it is the parent or caregiver who brought the child in who's right there in the exam room? Right. Well, and that's why it's important when a child makes a statement to you, you need to understand who the adult is that's with the child right now. and. For sexual abuse, many times it's the the mom bringing the child in, and many times it's not the mom who's the sex offender. So if it's not the abuser that's bringing the child in, I think it, and that's the person that the child is closest to, I think you need to work with the child to say, look, we need to tell mom, you can be in the room, you can tell her. I can tell her with you in the room, what would you feel most comfortable with? So you can offer some options. It's going to be anxiety-provoking for the child when they realize their parent is going to have to know. But if you have a situation where you don't know who's hurt the child, for example, which does happen more times when we're looking at physical injuries, then it's difficult because you don't know how much to tell the parent that's there. If there's any concern that that parent could be the one that's hurting the child, then you have to think about what your plan is. If you have an injury in a very young child, one thing to consider is transferring them to the hospital before the workup, and then they can be in that safe setting. And CPS will sometimes respond more quickly to that. So they would come to the hospital and begin to collect information then. So there's there's a lot of kind of case-by-case scenarios that can happen. CPS can have this reputation of, and what we hear on the news, like kind of being overwhelmed. Caseworkers can't really give the time that's needed. And then a child goes back to the family and then that child is killed. You know, you see, hear stories like that and... What do you say to that? There's there's all these other things where they're helping the family. That's not what you see on TV TV news or reading the newspaper. I, I know, and my I, I admire people who go into child protection work. I do too, because they deal with a lot more than we do as professionals, and they take a lot more flack mm-hmm. from. All ends from not just parents, you have angry, screaming parents often, you have frustrations, you have doubt, maybe things are not black and white, what do you do? It is, I admire people that go into that, especially people that stay in the work, because expertise is so important in this field, and yet there's not much incentive to stay with. I would just say that professionals, should be cooperative 
with child protection. And you can be, because if you suspect abuse and you report it, you are free to share that information without consent of the parent with anybody who's investigating the case. And so being making sure that you explain your concern in clear terms that CPS can understand, being available for questions. You know, they struggle because they constantly are trying to get information from so many different professionals and so many different individuals and collaboratives, and it's a never-ending task. So it takes a long time to do that. But if you can make yourself available and be helpful to them, it makes their job so much easier. And should you request that it be confidential if you're the pediatric practitioner making this call? By law, if you're the reporter, it is confidential. And you can make that statement, but it is supposed to be confidential, yes. And Dr. Kellogg, so so you work at a place called the Center for Miracles, and you all are standing by. There's always someone on call. You're on call right now where a pediatrician, a pediatric practitioner, or someone on their team could call and and talk to you. We have an on-call number. And yes, we take calls from all different kinds of folks. We're also on call 24-7 for CPS. So there are workers that are in the field. What do you think of this? What do I do? Do I send this child to the hospital? We are trying to help them with those situations as well. Of course, we do an assessment. We still don't have all the information. CPS has a lot more information than we do. They know more about the circumstances in the home. They more, know more about the background. They know more about whether it's been previous referred. They hold all of the information. So you're not the one making the determination. So the second thing to remember is that when you report, it doesn't always end up being validated. It's not a one-way street where the report happens, child taken out of the home, parents' custody is taken away. That's actually a very uncommon situation when you report suspected abuse. That doesn't happen very often. And most of the referrals that CPS gets are not validated for abuse and neglect. So to keep that in mind, but the other thing is to remember about CPS is they can provide the resources. They can make those other things happen if parents are having struggles. Perhaps they have a history. <laughs> Perhaps they have an untreated disorder of some kind, whether it's a medical or mental disorder. CPS can be a resource to help those parents get healthier. We do know that children do well when they have healthy parents, when they have healthy caregivers. You know, what kids need is a safe, secure, nurturing relationship with another person. Well, that other person can't provide that if they are dealing with their own issues. You know, their own, you know, maybe they can't, they're worried about money or they're worried about food. You know, they talk about the social determinants of health. That plays into it too. So knowing that the caregiver, if they get help, they can care for their child better. CPS can play a role in making that happen as well. They are always looking at ways for that to happen, and they are very much aware of the resources that would be available to families for that. Uh, one thing to know is that child sexual abuse has been declining a little bit in numbers through the years, just kind of a slow decline. That's the good news. Yes. <laughs> the bad news is, is that it's still a silent type of child abuse. It really depends on the child telling someone. That's how we learn about it. And many children still struggle 
with letting somebody know that they've been sexually abused. It's still very difficult for so many kids to tell. But yet that's the most common way that we diagnose is, is that child would tell someone that they've been sexually abused. And on average, it's not until at least two years? On average, what we found, we've done a couple of studies, and we did one many years ago, more than 20 years ago, and then one about five years ago. And in both of those studies, it was interesting to note that the average time was about two years, 2.3 years. Some children, of course, tell right away, and they may be seen in a hospital setting, but for many of those other children that are outside that acute window, they're waiting months to years to tell someone. I know you have more than 135 publications, and you've been invited to present at numerous national and international conferences. What's the biggest you question you get about sexual abuse? Wow, about sexual abuse? Well, first they want to know why I'm still doing this. <laughs> Yep. But um, what do you say? And what I say is that I really think it's a privilege and an honor to meet with these children. I'm kind of a glass half full kind of person. I am too. The fact that they told somebody and they're in my office and we're talking and we're making sure you're healthy and safe, those are all positive things. I worry about the children that haven't told because if it's happening in their home, they're living with this adversity every day. and who are they turning to? Where are they going to find safety and peace? <laughs> so I, I do think this is a privilege. I really do enjoy talking with the children that I meet. And part of that is because they teach me something new. Every time I talk with a child, I learn something new about how to do it better next time. You know? And I think a lot of this relates to what we call trauma-informed care. It's understanding you know, how to have a conversation with someone who has experienced something that's changed their life. And that's a, a skill that has to be ever-improving. Always find ways to do it better. So I've changed a lot. They've taught me so much. They've given me so much. Children have an amazing capacity for forgiveness. And that always astounds me, too. You know, you talk to a child and... They're not interested in the other person going to jail. They don't have any anger. They just mm. want their childhood back. They want a life where they're feeling safe and secure. And those are such basic things that we assume children have. And we have to remember there are some children who don't have that. And it's something they yearn for. Wow. And, and sometimes you're, I'm sure, talking to kids, there's cases where they still, no matter what, will not say what's happened, and then they, that child may test positive for a sexually transmitted disease or something, and so you know they didn't t tell, or what do you do there? It's got to be so yeah, hard. Those are, those are difficult situations, and actually, it's an interesting question because what we are finding is that the more severe the abuse is and the younger the child, for example, if children are subjects of pornography, that involve other people, so actually filmed sexual acts, those children are the least likely to tell anybody. Mm. So it, that's an alarming thing to think about. So the more severe the sexual abuse, the less likely they are to actually tell someone what's happened, even though we know. We know because we have video, or we know because we have an infection, or we know because we have an injury. So that's 
that's very, that means that the child is probably groomed to the point where they are not going to tell anybody. Mm, that is so terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying to think of those children. That is a, a minority of the group, but it's still one that we worry about because those are the hardest to find sometimes. And Nancy, is that because of the trauma, like a protective mechanism, or we just don't know? It's It could be protective mechanisms. It could be, and some, some of the children we see have such trauma that they completely dissociate. Or it could just be what we call grooming. So they've been told that they should never, ever tell and that they are as much a part of the abuse. They're not, this isn't being done to them, it's being done with them. Mm. So they begin to change their mindset of how they view their own abuse. And so that's sometimes the reason why these kids won't tell. Is there a misconception out there about abusers and people who are grooming kids that they're these mean people who are obviously bad guys, you know, or it's it's really, they're often seemingly very nice to the child? Yeah. So you cannot recognize somebody who sexually abuses kids on the street. You cannot recognize children who have been sexually abused on the street. There's nothing about them that looks off. Most of the time, they just look like normal people. When people are sexually abusing children, they usually begin that process by being nice, by paying attention to the child, by basically violating their trust, taking advantage of the trust that the child has. That's why children make good victims sometimes because they are trusting of adults and they look up to adults for guidance. They think adults are the ones that are right. And, and they're so, taught to, you better not, you know, talk back to the mom or dad or to the teacher or, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes kids are, you know, brought up that way that whatever happens to you, if it's an adult, they know what they're doing. You just have to accept it. I think it's less so now because I feel like parents empower their kids a lot more now. I think they tell them, you tell me if that makes you feel uncomfortable. I want to know. You know, what we, I've always said that the best prevention for sexual abuse would be to have a bunch of little kids with a shirt that says, I tell. So when people perpetrate sexually abused children, they are looking for a certain child. They're looking for a child who seems unsure of themselves, somebody who's quiet, someone who doesn't speak up much if they see or something that bothers them. That's the kind of child they want. So what you want to counter that is a child who, when you look at them, you say, you know, that kid is going to say something if they don't like it. And it doesn't have to be something that happens to them. It can be something that happens to another child. They're going to speak up. That's not a good victim. That's not a good kid to pick. And so I think it's really more of that type of mentality. I hear parents today, you know, tell me if you see anything. And I think it's just a more open communication about those issues. And that can be the best for them. Really good relationship with the parent. So what do you recommend practitioners say to families and to parents directly? What should we be saying regularly to, to kids, so, our, our children? Right. So I, I think that, you know, we have prevention and then we have intervention after sexual abuse has occurred. But when you're looking at anticipatory guidance with parents, 
I think, again, it's to touch base with your child frequently, to, to find opportunities to discuss how their day went, but also to pick up on some of those sometimes very subtle clues. A child may say, I saw something today, and maybe mom's really busy <laughs> making dinner or something like that, and it's like, okay, pick up on that. They're testing the waters. So when they make a vague statement like that, sometimes they've seen something that really needs to be discussed in detail. And being able to tell that child, yes, let's talk about that. And for the child to know, even if I can't talk about it right now, mom's going to come back and talk to me about this, or dad's going to come back and talk to me about this. So pick up on some of those subtle cues, because kids will test the waters. They say something to gauge a reaction to make them decide, I can say more, or no, it's better not to say more. So they're making those decisions, too. And picking up on that, what kids are saying, I think it's important. I, I think it's, you can say you're not going to be in trouble. Some kids would just hear be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You know, it's just a little bit like when we go into a physical exam, we say it's not going to hurt, and all they hear is hurt. Mm -hmm. Why does this person have to use that word? <laughs> right. That's a good, really yeah. good point. Yeah. So I think just touching base, talking to children, if somebody is, if, they, if you pick up on something and you start to talk to the child and they seem hesitant, I think it's important to say it's okay. You can say whatever you need to say and it will be okay. Uh, and not, not get too much into the language that may trigger a negative response from a child, like get in trouble or hurt, that type of thing. The pediatric practitioner listener, where, as we all know, they have so much coming at them. They're right now flu, COVID, RSV, so much stuff. And it's, can be overwhelming so much to keep up with. But when it comes to child sexual ab abuse, it's that listening. It's listening. It's listening. And what children really need are safe, secure, nurturing relationships. And if they have that, th they will understand they have that through communication. And also if they have that, they can get through stressors. So if they have something that bothers them, but they have a caregiver they identify with that's safe, secure, nurturing, they're going to feel safer with sharing information. So it, it's really an approach. It's, it's constantly building a relationship with your child. I think that relationship can really affect the choices a child makes as they get older about whether to do something that might get them in trouble <laughs> versus not. If a child is worried about what their parent will feel or think, that's a great modifier for that behavior. So that's why that relationship is so key. But making time to talk with a child alone, it's hard, and it's sometimes just not possible with the way busy lives are now, but it's worth that investment. It's to, and do it on a frequent basis. Do it so the child expects those talks. And it doesn't, you, the child shouldn't be pressured to have to feel happy all the time. No one's happy all the time. Right. Tell me something about your day. It made you feel funny or made you feel off. Or did you see anything that bothered you today? So, you know, we like the good braids. We like the nice papers. We like the smiley faces. But that's not everything a child experiences. And so they may struggle with other things, but not be used to talking about the things that don't feel so good. <laughs> so again, looking for those topics and those opportunities is very really key. 
And, and a lot of parents might be thinking like, oh, this this wouldn't happen to my child. Right. Yeah. I think it's, you don't want it to ever happen to your child. And so there's a, a certain wall that goes up. It, it's not me. <laughs> not right. me. I think to know that it does happen to everybody, children, across the, you know, the social spectrum, the whole spectrum, it does happen at all levels. Especially sexual abuse, the demographic is just widespread. So, yes, that denial can be difficult to get past. It's very important to really hear what the child says because sometimes if you're in denial or you're stressed, you don't hear it well. So being aware of that and just being open to it. You know, sometimes parents that come to me, they said, well, she hasn't told me much about what happened. She told me a little bit. And I would tell them, you know, what she only told me a little bit too. We have to keep our minds open that there may be more. And all we can do is just let the child know on your terms, at your time, when you say it's right, I'm ready to hear more if you want to share that. I know it's kind of, it's a hot button topic, but do you have any advice for parents about sleepovers, summer camp? There's parents who won't ever let their kids spend the night at another child's house or go to summer camp. And then there's the opposite and somewhere in between. I mean, you think, and then how can you really know someone where they're going, you know, to spend the night? Yeah, I think that's a tricky topic. I think just as you would investigate a daycare you might send your child to, you should know something about the home that they're going to to sleep over. I will just say in terms of my experience, I've had very few situations occur in the context of a sleepover. I've had very few that occurred in context of a, a camp, an overnight camp. So they may be happening, but I haven't seen many. Well, the biggest threat for a child is to have abuse happen in the home and just have that person still there or have you know, pretty frequent access to the child because that's just a constant threat for them. So when we do know that when children are sexually abused and teenagers as well by people outside the home or strangers, they're more likely to tell right away. The consequences of their disclosure fewer, if you will. Then it's not about breaking up a family. <laughs> it's not about you know, dis disrupting the family structure of any kind. It's not about that. It's about, will my parent blame me? That's one of the issues. But the issues are different, and they tend to tell sooner when it's somebody outside the home. But when it's somebody in the home, and especially if the child understands the ramifications of what would happen, the consequences, they're, they're the ones that are going to hold it in for a longer period of time. So if you go to a sleepover, you go to a camp, you leave the camp, you leave that house, you're safe. So for most children, being safe and not being forced to be with the person that did this is enough for them to feel that they can tell someone. Let's look at a couple of cases. You you had a patient, Brisa. So, so you... You've never met her, but only her parents through email. Tell me about yeah. that. So uh, back when I did some of those research papers on why kids tell, why they don't tell, and I was still very much learning something new every day about 
the disclosure of sexual abuse. It's especially in the context of when it's a family member and what that dynamic looks like, how that happens, how they're groomed, how they're forced into the situation. And the Brisa was 15 at the time, and I never met her. I never met her parents, but her parents reached out to me because I had published this paper, and also they were just looking for any information. Now, they were from Bolivia. They are in Bolivia. They're still in Bolivia. And they have a very different view of sexual violence there. They... It's not that they believe it doesn't happen. They believe if it happens, it's really the child's fault. Mm. So it's really Horrible. the child, and the child shouldn't tell because they could cause that other person to go to jail or cause the family to be shamed. And so for Brisa's family, the first thing that came out was the parents did not understand why she waited to tell. So we discussed through all through emails and faxes and things of that nature, why children would not tell for such a long time. And in this case, he threatened her. He actually physically assaulted her. He threatened her with the worst kind of things. He knew her, so he knew what to say to make sure she stayed quiet. Your parents will be devastated by this if you tell them. He was a family member, wasn't an immediate family member, but he was a remote family member. Mm. I'll do this to your sisters if you don't let me do it to you. Okay, so this went on. And then in this whole background of it was her family believed that he was an upstanding young man. They held him up as a role model for her. So the two of them were engaged in community projects or trying to build schools and education for children in Bolivia. And they were doing this together. So he had lots of access to her. Mm. And so I was just trying to help the parents through this. She was also suicidal. She was injuring herself at that point. She finally came out and talked about it. And the family was the one that really just tried to give her a talk about safe, secure, nurturing relationship. Reese's family, Reese's parents and her siblings were at the top of the list. They were exemplary in that nature because everything was against them. They brought it to court. The prosecutor, the one who's supposed to be on Bruce's side, threatened her that if you're saying one lie, I'm going to send you to prison. They had a trial. They basically attacked her. They humiliated her. They made fun of her. They threatened her. Her family was physically threatened. Somebody tried to put their house on fire, threw Mm. stones at the house. It was three years before they could even get a judge to agree to hear the case. So it was horrendous. And you talk about, you have the sexual abuse trauma, and then you have this whole other horrific trauma where the victim is the one on trial. She was the one that had to defend herself. And what's amazing in all of this is they they believed it happened, but it was her fault. And how could you do this? And so... A few years ago, I lost contact with them. I knew they were going to trial at that time. I lost contact with them. Did they find you somehow because they, they didn't have it in their own country? Two years ago. And they found me because I had been developing some educational material, and they identified me from that. So they reached out to the people who put the educational material, looking for my contact, and they got in touch with me. And what had happened is Buisa somehow just 
not only got through all this, she thrived. She's a, what I call a survivor. <laughs> She's amazing. But she came to the U.S. and she got legal education. And she basically, they had a, what they call a thematic hearing, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, sued Bolivia for violation of human rights. And so there was this long hearing, and the court, the court ruled that Bolivia had to take remedial action. They needed to establish training. They needed to establish programs to help victims of sexual violence. So in Bolivia, sexual violence is more common than it is here. It's like one in three girls, one in five boys. Oh, wow. Sexually Awful. assaulted. And, you know, again, through Brisa, she has a nonprofit now. They've helped. They have a huge success in court trying these cases. There's recognition that people that abuse kids usually don't stop at one. <laughs> so mm. trying to use the legal system, trying to use education and awareness to try to hear these victims. And to, and I, I don't like to call them victims because they're not really victims. These, anybody that speaks about their abuse is not a victim anymore. That's a great... Know? A great point. And so the family created a, a website and and in the title of the website it's Breeze of Hope. A Breeze of Hope dot org. Yeah. Who we are. And we'll put that in the podcast text as yeah. well. So Breeze's story is there. And they want people to, to again, know. so brave to share it with everybody. And in sharing, they're hoping to prevent more abuse. And they and they're really they're going where the need is the most. That while she is here, her family's in Bolivia, and you know they have they did get Bolivia to declare a day in August as a day for sexual violence to prevent sexual violence. That's great. So they had a march, and I remember in Brisa's journal she indicated she was expecting the first time they had it was a few years ago, and they, she was expecting a hundred people, five thousand people showed up for that march. Mm. So they can see the things they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's so slow because the government is not stepping up yet for the remedial actions they need to take. But they, they just persist. They persist. And I think it's because they've been able to help so many people so far. They've reached out to them. They've helped them with their cases. They've helped them with therapy. They've helped them with all those things. So... That's a, that's a little miracle going on, maybe a big miracle going on in, in Bolivia that's really heartening to hear about. And so she's, it sounds like she's doing amazingly well. Yeah. Is that often a side effect, though, before a child tells that the su suicidal tendencies? And as we know, there's an epidemic in, in this country now with mental health problems in kids and depression. Right. It, it's very common in the adolescents that I speak with. There's sometimes it is directly related to the abuse they've experienced, but there's also just a lot of trauma in schools now. So a lot of bullying takes its toll on kids. I would say it's probably higher in the adolescents that I see compared to those that do not experience sexual abuse. And that's Again, it's a very concerning trend. It's definitely increased from when I began the tour many years ago, much more increased. And that, that's just very concerning. When families come to our clinic, we are very 
attuned into trying to meet their needs. So their needs could be food, their needs could be shelter. But the number one most common need that families tell us about is, I just want my child to get therapy. I want her to get help or him to get help. And that's encouraging, but very often families also have their own needs they never had addressed, their own mental illness or their own adversities that they've experienced in the past that were never addressed and they never got therapy for. So it's a very comprehensive situation. And in, in this country, the, the statistics that I've read, is it, is it for girls every one in four will be abused in their lifetime, sexually abused? So it's like one in five. That, yes, that's the prediction. For boys, it's less common. So like one in like five. One in 20, yeah. But one in five for girls? About one in five. Is it? But it does happen to boys? Yes, it does. Because I think that might be a misconception that's out there, that it can't happen to boys. Yeah, I think that is a misconception. It's... A little bit different for boys. A lot of times, they're not as likely to have the self-harm that I see in the females, but they're also more closed about it. So, you know, we have a questionnaire. We, of course, ask kids about self-injury and self-harm. We ask them about what they're mad at, what they're afraid of. Are they having trouble in school or sleeping? And for boys, it's more likely to be, no, 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 no. <laughs> And I, I worry about that because at some point, I think they have to work on what's happened to them so that they can be healthy in the future. I worry about it leaking out. You know, I tell kids sometimes, I said, it really helps not just to get what happened to you out, but to get the feelings underneath out because it's like a splinter. You have a splinter in your finger, it really hurts. And it hurts a whole lot when you take it out, but then it starts to heal. And then it doesn't hurt anymore. So I, I use that with younger kids sometimes so they can understand the importance of telling. But, you know, it, it does happen to boys. And just being aware of that, because I think boys tend to sometimes feel more guilt. Shouldn't happen to me. I should be able to stop this. If it's something I don't like, I'm a boy. I'm supposed to be able to stop it. I'm I'm strong enough. And it's just not. So it's something that they, I think, struggle with more sometimes. It just doesn't go along with how they envision themselves. When I was a news reporter and just at one of the stations I worked at, KSAT here in San Antonio, but all news stations, you hear the police and fire scanner all day. And the assignment editor is listening, you know, for that it's called spot news that's happening and mo most of it is ends up being family violence and abuse that's happening and that was i mean as that's and most of it doesn't make the news but you hear it all day as a reporter it was just horrible to hear and it's so it's it's more common than i think most people realize yeah so family violence is it's domestic violence we always ask about that we ask kids and we also ask the caregivers. And we ask them separately because sometimes caregivers think, oh, kids don't, don't know this is going on because we're doing it in another room and they have no awareness. But children know more than the caregivers think. And they are often very much aware. And they see sometimes the bruises 
on their caregivers the next day, and they can put it together. They understand what's going on. You know, we have to remember that violence in the home, that's an adverse childhood event. <laughs> we talk about these kids, so if they, if they experience abuse or they experience domestic violence or they have a caregiver that has challenges with mental health, challenges with substance use disorder, all of those things add up for a child. I think there are times when children would say, yes, that's going on in my home. I've seen or I've heard this person and hit this person. And the caregiver saying, never. <laughs> so again, we don't credit kids. They, they're very attentive. They're very aware of what's going on in their home. And I think parents need to be to understand that. And it has an effect on them. And Nancy, can you, for the pediatric practitioner, can you explain the process of how does the family get to you or the child get to you? If, if the pediatrician calls Child Protective Services, then what happens? Yeah. So we have a pretty good protocol or process for this. So when there's sexual abuse and it, it's something that happened recent, and recent here we're talking about like within 96 hours. If it's concern that happened within 96 hours, or you know it happened within 96 hours, or that child has some pain or bleeding, we want them to go to the hospital. And right now, here in San Antonio, the pediatric program is at Children's Hospital of San Antonio, or Christie's Children's, rather. And then we have, so sometimes Methodists would see the older adolescents, but mostly it'll be Christie's Children's that see them. If it, it's beyond that period of time, if something has happened at least a week ago, or at least five days ago, then the report is the first step. What will happen next is that usually that child will get a forensic interview at Child Safe, and then Child Safe will send the referral to us at Center for Miracles, and then we would schedule the child to be seen there. Nancy, another child that stands out is 11-year-old Rachel. So she had experienced numerous traumas. Yeah. Tell me about her case. So Rachel taught me a lot. <laughs> I really had to respect Rachel a lot because she was very upfront about what she was going to allow and what she wasn't going to allow. And as I met her, one thing I did realize with her before I share her story is that every child, every parent that we see has a set unspoken fears, unspoken questions when they come to our office. And they're not sure whether to share those or not. So it's really our job to try to earn their trust. We can't expect it. We have to try to earn it and to try to encourage them to be able to share those questions and those fears. Well, Rachel came in, and she had a lot of history. She had been in several different placements, had had several different CPS referrals. She was there for a sexual abuse exam. And she came in, and she did not want the exam. So I said, well, tell me about that. She said, well, I have four, four rules, okay? I said, tell me what they are. And so she said, you know, first she said, don't lie to me. Don't give me shots. Don't talk about my mother. And don't tell me to do something immediate or I will be traumatized. And so I think, yeah, sometimes people come in and they have these burdens and they have these demands and they have this anger. And they're expecting us to say, you know, you can go away and come back another day. <laughs> I think they expect the pushback. 
And I said, okay, let's talk about each of those. Okay, I promise not to lie to you. <laughs> I promise no shots. You can look at my office. I have no shots. <laughs> I will not talk about your mother, and I will not tell you to do anything, but I will discuss with you after you talk to me what I think we need to do for your health and safety, and we can make a decision about what happens next together. So, again, medicine is a cooperative venture towards healing. It's always trying to get the cooperation. It's just so key. And so what's funny about that is that she told me everything when I agreed to her rules and I responded to them. She talked about her mother. She talked about everything that she said she wouldn't do. And she went through the exam fine. We had no issues at all. But I just, there's always something to learn. And I was just thankful that she she knew what she had to tell me about what the rules were for the day. Or the, you know, the rules are often the fears. And recognizing that and trying to build that bridge to someone, to me, it's always been a gratifying process. And it's actually the favorite part of my job is when I meet someone, can I build the bridge? You know, can I get to the point where this person feels safe enough, trusts me enough? to share what happened. Because a lot of kids won't tell you that up front, what this is what, <laughs> I'll talk to you if this, this, and this. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Yeah, they don't, they don't tell you up front. It's up to you to try to figure it out as you go into the conversation, to try to understand what their concerns are, what their fears are. And so, and Rachel was protective of her mother? She did not like her mother. <laughs> she oh. blamed her mother for all the different placements that she had to go to. So it sounds like, I mean, her mother had a lot of her own issues and they were not getting appropriately or completely addressed enough for her to be a safe, secure person for racial. And, you know, that's something that kids sometimes talk about, being disappointed in their parents, being you know, caregivers, is that they didn't give me what I needed as a kid. And that's hard, Brendan, that is, because that you is. want every child <laughs> to be able to have a person that can be their, their person, their safe person. And that's just not something we can take for granted. And she knew that because she was in those situations, that that is what put her at risk. Yes. I mean, she blamed, she blamed her mother for all her different. I, I don't know exactly, and I didn't want to push her to do it because, again, their background, they can share as much of that as they wish to. For me, it was more of a, Whatever was going to work for her, whatever was going to make her feel better, I wanted her to share. But as a medical provider, I didn't have to know that. I try to stay very focused on what I actually need to know. You know, I, I'm not going to, to delve into details that I don't have to have. If they want to share it and that helps them, that's great. But I am not going to try to pull things out. Any other take-home messages about Rachel that you would want the pediatric practitioner to know about? Any learning moments? None that I can think of. I just think it's, you know, being transparent and honest with kids. I think a lot of times when we're in a pediatric office, we have the caregiver there, we have the child there. We're not talking with the child alone. And so many times, I think we preferentially always talk to the parent, but talking to the child first and just say, you know, how are you doing today? Not how are we today or what's going on today to the parent, but addressing the child directly. 
I, I don't know if children are as used to that. And to let them know they have a voice in this checkup. That's a great point. And to say the child's name. Right. Right. And, you know, explain. To you, so you're here for your five-year checkup today. So this is what we're going to do because we have to make sure you're healthy. We're going to check your body from head to toe, you know, and then we're going to do some tests. Yeah, But just respecting that they should have this information. This is about their body, their their health. <laughs> so understanding even a five-year-old deserves some respect for their role and what that pediatric visit is about. That's really wonderful. Is there anything else you want to say about sexual abuse to the practitioner? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's really three basic ways that I've learned that children can present to a pediatrician's office with concerns for sexual abuse. So first is that they told somebody. And as we said before, this is the most common way that we find out about sexual abuse. I think when a practitioner gets a call from a caregiver, my child just told me this, this, and this, and the child has said it very clearly, and they're of an age, you know, five and older, where it seems like a legitimate statement, that is something that, you know, should be referred to either the hospital or to CPS immediately. I don't think the pediatrician needs to see that child unless the parent has some specific reason why they want to bring them in. So they can be referred. I think where the trick is when the child tells someone is that when you have a very young child, let's say a three or four-year-old, sometimes they'll make a statement that's difficult to interpret. And so it's not always clear that sexual abuse is a concern here and it may require some further clarification. So those are, you know, that's the most common way sexual abuse. But a lot of these kids are coming to pediatricians because parents are concerned, caregivers are concerned about their sexual behaviors. And we've learned a lot about sexual behaviors in children. We know that it's very frequent. There's a wide variety of sexual behaviors that very young children, preschool children, can have. So being knowledgeable about what's normal and what's not normal in terms of sexual behaviors can go a long way because sometimes caregivers get very anxious when they see their children sexually touching themselves too much or touching themselves in public, not knowing what to do with it, getting angry with the child. So the perception of the caregiver sometimes affects the frequency of the behavior. And I think a pediatrician can have a really important role in trying to clarify what's normal and clarifying the appropriate responses to those kinds of behaviors. So the third thing that can happen... And is there anything you want to mention specifically for the pediatric listener to Yeah, so sexual behaviors in children is a whole other topic. (laughs) (laughs) We could do another Um, podcast on that. But I will say in general, as a rule of thumb... If children don't understand the social taboos yet, like they don't know you're not supposed to pick your nose in public, they probably won't know you're not supposed to put your hand on your privates in public. So it's not necessarily a deliberate action. It's not even sexual for some children. Maybe they have an itch or they're curious or they simply want to do something that would draw the caregiver's attention. So it's not always a sexual gratification motive behind these behaviors. It's curiosity. It's it's a lot of different things. It's soothing. Sometimes it's self-soothing to children, and that's not bad, but sometimes it has to be redirected. It may not be appropriate. As they get older, these behaviors are still there, but they're more 
COVID, we don't see them. We don't see kids doing this in public anymore, but they're still very interested in sexual topics. So, you know, obviously, if we have a child who is engaged in sexual behavior with another child and one or both children are very distraught by it, they're agitated, or one child is being very forceful, that's a situation you have to intervene with. And you have to find out more about that behavior to see what the best management is. Not all of those kids have to be reported to CPS. There's a lot of things to think about, like the ages of the children, the type of sexual behavior it is. Is it persistent? All of those things have to be considered. So it gets complicated when we get to that. So, you know, there's there's clinical report in AAP on sexual behaviors of children. We're getting ready to redo that. Sexual behaviors is really on a spectrum. So there's some things that are completely normal, and then other things are gray zone, and then there's some that are clearly not normal, require intervention, treatment, and sometimes reporting. So being kind of aware of those types of behaviors and being able to guide the caregiver. Many of the ones we get are in the normal range, but the caregiver doesn't like it, and they're worried that something's happened to the child. And many times that's just not something that we find or we're not able to determine if that happened. So sexual behavior is a big topic, but it's one that, you know, it's probably presents to pediatricians' offices not infrequently. And we could put the, the AEP link about sexual behaviors you, in there? You can. But, um, and you're working on that? With- well, well, it's not going to be for a while before it comes out. I'm working on it with Dr. Kassoon, actually. And so the reiteration of the original one, which I did when I was on the AAP committee, that'll be coming sometime in a couple of years, probably, the way the process is. And that's Dr. Natalie Kassoon, who's part of the child abuse pediatric team, a doctor right. on the team yeah. here at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Yeah. So that's, that's important. There's just so many things to think about with sexual behavior. And cultural factors are also very big because different cultures and ethnicities view these behaviors differently, too. So the perspective, again, of the caregiver, their culture, their background, their own experiences can play into the interpretation of these behaviors. So just keeping that in mind. And the third way that these children can present to a pediatric office is with some type of genital complaint. So maybe there's redness there, there's irritation, there's a discharge, there's maybe even some blood, and the caregiver is concerned that this is trauma, that this could be sexual abuse. And so those those children would obviously need to be examined. But I will say that in the absence of a history or anything else, most of the time those kids with genital complaints are going to have something else. It's not going to be trauma. It can be something else that mimics trauma, or it can be trauma that's not due to sexual abuse. So, for example, children can get small anal fissures that cause spots of blood in the underwear or the diaper, and that is a common cause of seeing blood in the diaper or the underwear. That has nothing to do with sexual abuse. Right, right. So so those are the three basic ways. Okay. Anything else you want to, this is, has been so enlightening. Anything else? You- it's important just as Child Protective Services does not always find abuse. Neither do we at Center for Miracles. And so 
the way that we like the system to be is to have a low threshold for reporting at the front line. So those are the pediatricians, the hospital folks, the emergency department folks. We want low threshold. And then if we look at the injury, usually what happens is we identify additional information we need to have. It might be scene information. It might be more details from the parent. It might be details from the child. So we, through Child Protective Services, get this additional information. And very often, it goes from a suspicion to either nonspecific or no concerns. And that's okay, because we're watching out for kids. That's the whole goal here. So it's been a nice system for working that way, because then we are less likely to miss children that really do need help, really do need those assessments. So if you suspect something, call Child Protective Services just as that, just the suspicion. Suspicion is all the law requires for you to report. And again, you're not making a decision. You're not making a determination. You're saying, I'm suspicious more is needed to look into this. That's what you're saying. You're not going to do everything. You're not going to do the investigation. So I think it's, and sometimes pediatricians get frustrated. Oh, nothing happened. Know that there's a lot that happened in between, but they may not be aware of the additional information that was collected. I know you've made such a difference and you continue to do that, and but you consider your family your greatest contribution. And here on Pediatrics Now, we like to promote having a life outside of medicine with all of the high stress of this career and high burnout. You enjoy hiking and camping with your family? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, with I am. I never take it for granted that I was blessed enough to be able to give a safe, secure, nurturing relationship to my children. So many families I meet, by no fault of their own, they just have too many challenges, are not able to do that for their children. So for me, being able to provide that, it's just that's why it's my greatest accomplishment. I was able to do that for them and. My work has made me understand how important a gift that is, you know. So, but getting away from it all and and really having a whole different perspective of there's a whole other world out there and just becoming immersed in looking around you beyond your, your only your very small universe, look at the big universe and just understand that you're one piece in the big picture. It's always helped me with perspective and being able to come back and get back to work. <laughs> it's just that we, we did camping with my kids all through their childhood years. And I, I hope they had good memories with that. I think they did, but it was just a wonderful time. And again, you didn't have cell service when we went. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> Phones were off, or even if they were on, they weren't working. <laughs> and it was just wonderful to be able to devote that time to each other and just talking and just reconnecting. You know, my kids would connect with each other. It just it was just a great time that we all look forward to. And so we just try to keep that tradition through all the way up until about high school. That's really beautiful. And I'm going to edit this part back in, but I one question I forgot is, do you want to say anything about social media and sexual abuse there or yeah, also so, a whole other... Right. It's So our concept of sexual abuse has expanded greatly and not in a good way. And so we have trafficking 
now we have a lot of children involved in pornography. We have, unfortunately, a lot of adolescents involved, a lot of them not by choice, with sexting. So they will receive nude pictures from random strangers. For some, it's distressing. For others, they think it's funny. I, I worry a little bit about that being a new norm mm. for kids because I, they kind of giggle about it when they tell me, and I, I'm just concerned because I have seen situations where these sects that have been used for blackmail have <laughs> mm-hmm. been Awful. used to humiliate kids, have been used as a form of bullying, and so they can be, it, it's, a, it's a huge leverage for someone to have over an adolescent. So I think, uh, again, a lot of the adolescents I see, they're meeting somebody online and they're having, they're meeting up with them and then not expecting and not prepared to protect themselves. And then they're being sexually assaulted. So they're very open with their trust. And I worried about what I call the self-protective skills. And, you know, when I work with them and work with families, I tell them, you know, what I really hope from all this is that they learn to protect themselves. They begin to recognize and anticipate the dangers because the choices they're making are sometimes devastating choices in terms of lifelong adversities that they face. Is the sexual abuse online, is that that's happening with photos, words, videos, and then yeah. sometimes someone in person trying to connect with them. Yeah. So it's all different types now. It's not just about touching anymore. It's verbal. It's harassment. It, again, there's a spectrum of behaviors that are highly concerning. Exploiting people, that's very worrisome to me. And it just seems that so many kids are at risk for it. And anything you want to mention quickly just about how do we protect our our children from that? Is it know what they're looking at online? I know. I know. How does, yeah. How do we do that? It's like, yeah. And there's all these new website, news, social media stuff. It's how do you access that? And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not okay. on social media at all. I'm not either anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I've long given that up. I, I ask them, what do they do when they get these images from people they don't know or they do know? And many of them just say, oh, I just block them. And I said, well, why don't you have a conversation with your parent about it too? So again, going, hearkening back to the importance of a parent-child connection, I'm not sure parents can completely protect their kids from this, which is worrisome. But they can be there for them to help them make the healthy choices when they get to that point. Remember, so if the adolescent is trying to decide, do I send a new picture of myself or not? And the next thought is, what would my parents say? That's going to be a modifier. So again, building those very strong, healthy, close relationships can be a preventative measure for things like that when they get into trouble with the social media. That's great advice. Dr. Nancy Kellogg, Division Chief for Child Abuse, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. And Dr. Nancy Kellogg with the University of Texas Health Science Center, University Hospital, and the Center for Miracles. Thank you for being here.
Thank you so much for listening to Pediatrics Now. Don't forget to click on the link in this podcast for a free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. For episode ideas, you can email me. Go to our website, pediatricsnowpodcast.com. You'll find my email address on there. I'd love to hear feedback and let me know what you think. If you know anyone who may be interested in Pediatrics Now, please share. I'm Holly Wayment. Thank you so much for listening and for making a difference. One pediatrician said to me the other day, it's really hard to be a pediatrician these days. We hope by listening to the podcast, we can help make it easier. We can give you the updates that you need and topics that you want to know more about.